Hello and welcome to Talking Eds, APN Educational Media's weekly review podcast, comprising the team behind Early Learning Review, Education Review and Campus Review. I'm Patrick Avenal and I'm the news editor for these sites. We have two interesting conferences coming up. In the higher education space, the Campus Review team is holding the Higher Equity Summit on Monday, 26 September 2016. This meeting of minds will examine the various barriers to equality in higher education. Head to campusreview.com.au and follow the links to Higher Equity Summit. The Education Review team is preparing the Protect Ed Conference, a look at how technology is changing the education sector and what precautions schools should consider in the digital age. This conference is on Friday, 21 October 2016. Go to educationreview.com.au and look for Protect Ed. And now, are childcare benefits funding terrorism? The topical issue uniting academics and dispelling ageing myths with Australia's foremost gerontologist. I'm joined by Lauren Smith from Early Learning Review. Hi, Lauren. Hi, Patrick. And James Wells, the editor of Education Review and Campus Review. How are you going, James? Good. How are you? Very well. And back for his sophomore appearance, Aged Care Insight boss, Dallas Bastian. Hey there, Dallas. Hi, Patrick. How have you been? I've Keeping been, well? I have the flu, but still in good spirits. Excellent. Lauren, you're kicking us off today. You covered a yarn this week that linked a childcare rorting scam to the funding of international terrorism. What's the story? That's right, Patrick. It sounds like clickbait, but it's actually true. So on ABC 730 report, they found that two men who run a network of family daycare centres have, I guess, contractors who have been rorting the childcare rebate system. They took an alleged $27 million out of it. That's taxpayers' money. And there are allegations that they have been sending it to ISIS. So federal police are investigating them. Two men have been arrested, a further two are being questioned. Um, and this is quite a new sort of idea in that although childcare rorts have been around for a long time and we've heard of many of them over the years, this link to terrorism is significantly more alarming than in the usual cases where the money was found and it was in Australia. Are you able to provide an overview of sort of how you wrought the childcare benefit system? Sure, so what they did is they falsified documents, they claimed rebates for children who weren't there, they got around the no jab, no pay rule by also uh, falsifying documents that way. So yeah, they basically forged signatures and doctored uh, documentation. It, it says that $27 million, that's a huge amount of money. How many signatures do you, how many sort of records do you have to falsify to, well, to um, they garnish had, that much money? They had over 600 providers in their network. So it's unknown at this point how many of those providers were committing these fraud crimes, but it wouldn't take that many to I guess ruled that much given the amount of rebates that you can get. Were any of these providers actually real or did they only exist on paper? Well that's another question that police are now investigating. For example one of the people who they've already charged is a 22 year old called Ali Assad and he was supposed supposed to be running a childcare centre in Moorbank and police actually discovered that he was in Malaysia while during this period so they arrested him on that basis. Another one of the, the sort of the, the childcare scams that you mentioned in this story is a practice called child swapping. And this happens on a, a smaller scale, but 
uh, still is costing the taxpayer money. What's child swapping? So child swapping is not as uh, sort of scary as it sounds, although it is definitely a rort. It's when a family daycare provider sends their own child to another provider of family daycare and claims a rebate instead of caring for them along with the other children that are already there in their house. And is this happening, is this common or? Uh, So this has been common in the past to the extent that the government had to outlaw it because there was a legal loophole that these providers were using in order to do that. But now it's illegal. So the government's obviously cracked down on it. All right. Just in general, is is the childcare industry, you know, is it more susceptible to rorting than other industries or is or are these just high profile cases? I think the fact that it's such a large industry means that there's probably a chance of a high number of rorts occurring, but I don't think it's any more susceptible. Is it very un, it's very unregulated, isn't it? Well, not really, not more so than any other social service payment but you know as I said it's a huge industry so unless you've got people on the ground checking everything twice it's easy for these kind of things to happen unfortunately. In part two James one of the big talking points over the last fortnight and perhaps the last decade has been how Australia handles asylum seekers. It's an evergreen issue but it has been especially prominent following the Guardian's release of the Nauru files. It's a, it's a divisive issue, but it has united one section of Australia. Tell us more. Surprisingly, it's academics who are notoriously not divi- not um, united. There's a group called Academics for Refugees who have been running since 2014, I believe, and they've, they've recently garnered 2,000 signatures of academics in support across Australian universities for a policy paper calling for Australia's immigration detention centres to shut and for a national policy summit so we can actually get people talking about a proper asylum seeker policy system. That's essentially the story. And are they being uh, sort of, what are, their, what are their tactics or what are their strategies? Well, their, their tactics is generally revolved, revolved around peaceful demonstration and sending a lot of open letters to politicians and prime minister, which they have garnered political response from, I spoke to Erica Betts when he responded and he said it's just a cheap des- desire for headlines. Andrew Wilkie, the independent MP, threw his full, full support behind it, and Tanya Plibersek responded basically saying, Labor will attempt to end a shroud of secrecy behind the asylum seeker camps. One, one of the, sort of the, you know, when academics get together and they put up signs and they use hashtags, it, it, all, it all seems to be quite pie in the sky. Like, it's, mm. it's much easier to do that than it is to come up with sort of a workable alternative solution. Mm. Have they suggested uh, sort of... A, what what they would do if they were put in charge if we had a oh, yes a, they have an intelligentsia running the show they have they've um in the policy paper I mentioned they've given a whole policy on what we should be doing how we should be working with our regional neighbours to integrate asylum seekers into into the community and part of their group is um Harry Minus a former Gillard government advisor on on asylum seekers who quit because of the policy back in the day so they know they know what they're talking about and this. This summit they're trying to create is trying to make the debate less adversarial because the debate is just so divisive. You have one side, the other side, and no one seems to be able to work it, work it out. It is a very polarising debate, and there doesn't seem to be a lot of empathy for each other's, for, for sort of, you know, what you would call the left and the right's, those alternative viewpoints. And, and so I, I'd be interested to see whether these sort of 
whether the leak of the Guardian files and whether these campaigns have any really impact in the discussion because it seems as though uh, the two major parties don't want to, well, the Labour Party doesn't want to be seen as being out of step with the coalition because they're terrified of whether that will cost them votes. Mm. And Peter Dunn's just accused journalists of trying to defame him. Well, yeah, well, th- that, that's mm. a tactic that plays very well with, uh, with conservative voters and mm. with people who, who don't want to have uh, onshore on processing is the idea that um, it's actually uh, people like Peter Dutton and Australians mm. that are being persecuted and not the yeah. asylum seekers. I also have to say, the, um, a lot of the protester tactics are quite divisive too, like the, um, the, the protests who go up on Malcolm Turnbull's stage, that's, that's just backfiring, to be honest, because it just gives uh, the other side the argument ammunition to call them crazy. Yeah, basically. I agree. I yeah. agree with that point as well. Lauren, what are your thoughts on this issue? My thoughts are that um, I'd like to see more about this policy, what they're recommending um, as an alternative to these offshore camps. Uh, I haven't actually seen it. And also, I'd like to wait for due process to take its course in terms of the Nauru files. I feel like there are a lot of people sort of speaking out without really considering the legality, um, the fact that these claims haven't been investigated yet. They are still claims. So I think until that all settles down, um, I, I can't really have an opinion one way or the other. Um, for er- anyone look- looking for the policy paper, it, there's a link on Campus Review in the story. One of the interesting things I've thought about The Guardian's coverage was how it was mostly ignored by other Australian media outlets who didn't seem to want to promote The Guardian sort of arriving in Australia and breaking big news stories and stealing advertising and clicks away from their own sites. I think normally that sort of that sort of you know huge data dump would generate discussion from other media sources, but it just seemed to be no one wanted to even validate the Guardians as a viable source of news in Australia. I suppose that just stems from the state of media right now. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's uh, you you wouldn't you wouldn't normally see that about other issues. Normally, once some, an agenda is set by a major news organisation, other news agencies mm-hmm. sort of follow the lead. Yeah. Well. Um... I'm not sure if that's entirely accurate. There have been ABC did a report on the Nairi files, I believe. ABC yeah. sort of operates in mm. a different uh, landscape to the to the for profit ones, though. In part three, this week I spoke to Bob Knight, one of Australia's, if not the world's, most respected gerontologists. The UQ, UQ professor has a PhD in clinical psychology from Indiana University and is the author of books including Psychotherapy with Older Adults and the editor of Journals of Gerontology, Psychological Sciences. He's on a mission to dispel some of the major misconceptions about our grandparents and older people in general. And uh, Dallas from Aged Care Insight has stepped in to join us. I'm going to run through Bob's big five myths about growing older and have a chat about why we think these are so pervasive. And myth number one is that older people are sad, cranky and crotchety. And uh, the, the image that I used to showcase this was the old man yells at cloud meme from The Simpsons. And one of the interesting things that Knight uh, fed back about this myth is that it's actually not older people who report uh, being angry or sad or cranky. The saddest people in society are 20s, people in their 20s. And, and you actually get happier as you get older. Uh, so, Dallas, is that sort of something that you've had from your experience uh, writing about the aged care sector? Um, I haven't um, written too much about uh, younger Australians 
perceptions of older Australians, but an idea that Bob brought up that I thought was very interesting was, was projection. So the expectation that, that you're coming to the close or the end of your life and, and that makes younger people thinking about aging sad and so they assume older adults themselves might be sad and there may be, may be something there. Uh, Bob's second myth is something that uh, perhaps we don't think about or don't want to think about, and that's how physically or sexually active older Australians are. And uh, Bob said, there's a general resistance of thinking about older people as fully sexual beings. And I think it's often surprising to people when surveys come out that show people are still sexually active into their 60s, 70s, 80s and beyond. There seems to be a natural tendency of people not to want to talk about their parents and I guess by extension their grandparents as having sex and being sexually active. And uh, I tend to agree with uh, Bob's view there. Uh, Dallas, you've actually written quite a few stories about sexuality and, and sexual politics in residential facilities. Yeah, we've had quite a few stories up on Aged Care Insight. Recently, PhD candidate Alison Rahn from the University of New England uh, co-authored the paper Conflicting Agendas, the Politics of Sex in Aged Care. And, and found that uh, some of the ways in which intimacy in aged care was being inhibited included staff entering residents' rooms without knocking, couples receiving single beds, and, and workers gossiping about residents. Um, and, and Ran said there, there are no government policies to, to address the sexual needs of aged care residents. So this isn't something that's just, you know, not acknowledged in the community, but it's, it's uh, you know, neglected in policy as well. Um, but it's definitely something that comes up year after year that people aren't recognising that older Australians do indeed have sex and are still intimate. Uh, back in 2014, a doctor from the US named Emmanuel Ezekiel, which is a great name, uh, wrote a piece for the New York Times focusing on the idea that aged care facilities uh, are the new college, college campuses uh, in terms of you know, the rise of STIs that they're seeing in the States. Uh, and in the article, he pointed to data from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention that revealed the rate of chlamydia infections amongst, amongst Americans aged 65 and over rose by 31% between 2007 and 2011, and cases of syphilis more than doubled. So, I mean, that's evidence in and of itself that people over the age of 65 are still having sex. Uh, with those dates that you mentioned there, Dallas, I wonder if there is a link to uh, drugs like Viagra becoming more socially acceptable <laughs> and, you know, the spread of STIs. Perhaps we should be doing more uh, sex ed classes once we hit uh, retirement age just to give a refresher about how, uh, how to prevent STIs. Maybe aged care facilities should provide condoms. I think if you don't know by then, it's almost too late physically to really... It sounds like the Olympic Village, the, the, the picture you painted there, Dallas. Uh, the third myth, and I, this is one that I, I do think that a lot of people hold, is that old people are lonely. And uh, what Bob found was that not only... It's not that older people are lonely, it's that they narrow their, their social group and their friendship group as you get older. Now, obviously, that can happen naturally as friends die, but it also happens that you move into a new phase of your life where you're just, you just have closer and more intimate relationships with fewer people. And you also learn to adapt to, to not having as many people around you as time goes on. 
I'm just interested to know your experience with uh, your perhaps your grandparents or older people that you've come across, whether you've perceived them to be lonely or whether they're just happy being uh, in a smaller network. I perceived my nan to be lonely after my pa died, but yeah, no, I don't think my, my grandma on my mum's side is, is lonely. If she's in a, um, like a village. I think it depends on whether the person has a solid social network in their residential facility because I know with my grandma for instance she doesn't really like the people that she lives with and she often says if she didn't have her family she'd have no one so I think it's really circumstantial mm. and it also depends on I think it in, in a residential village it depends on how much the village actually facilitates social interaction like gives activity like um days out activities and stuff like that if they're just kept in their rooms all the time this may not be as big a problem as we assume, but, but social isolation is still a huge issue and, and one that the aged care sector is con- constantly trying to address through, through things like technology and, and just other interventions. Um, it, it's on this list as a myth, but I, I still think it definitely is an important thing to talk about and to, to keep high on the agenda um, when it comes to older Australians' health and well-being. Uh, Bob's fourth myth was that people in retirement homes are inactive and don't get around much. And he said that, generally speaking, at any one time, only about 5 to 10% of the older adult population is living in retirement homes. But I think because they're settings that only have older people in them, and because a lot of the media coverage of things that go on in later life often centre around issues and problems with aged care, when you think of older adults, that's the first thing you tend to think of. And you tend to overlook the much larger number of older adults still living in age-integrated settings and regular neighbourhoods. Now, I think that uh, one of the things that, uh, you know, in my job being the news editor of Aged Care Insight is that I've seen a lot of interesting activities that residential homes put on in in order to try and keep uh, their residents active. And this week, uh, we covered the Beth Olympics, which is one of the aged care providers in Western Australia put on a mini Olympics where their five residential homes competed against each other in age-appropriate sporting activities. And there are some fantastic images on Aged Care Insight uh, to check out. And those sort of, I find it quite heartwarming, the effort that a lot of these places go to, to keep their residents, you know, up and about and doing things that, you know, instead of sitting in a couch all day watching TV. Yeah, it's definitely um, something that a lot of providers um, really try to to always uphold is this, um, you know, active aging um, and avoiding sedentary lifestyles, that sort of thing. I think also we, we tend to think of, when we think of over 65s, we don't always picture someone representative of that age group, perhaps. My father's almost 65 and I certainly don't picture him when I, when I think of a senior. So I think uh, every day we see active seniors in the community and perhaps those images aren't as pervasive or as memorable as others. So, so when we conjure an image of someone over 65, we don't see, you know, someone running on the beach. We, we might see something um, a little less active, I guess. And the fifth myth is that no one wants to end up in an aged care facility. And uh, Bob said that it's an individual's decision and that some people for a variety of reasons really like to be in a more age segregated setting and be around people their own age and some and like some of the activities and regular interactions that come about in those settings while others often prefer to maintain their independence 
And so often it's, it's about a discussion between uh, the older Australian and, the, and their kids, generally, their adult age children, about where they end up. Adelis, I know you've got some thoughts on this. Just speaking anecdotally, I've encountered plenty of residents who, who are proud of their aged care home and, and they love living there. Obviously, that's not always the case and we see that in mainstream media. But I think um, mainstream media's reporting about the sector is sometimes a bit slanted just in that most outlets tend to focus on the doom and gloom stories about ageing, uh, which possibly skews public perception. Uh, we hear about abuse and neglect and it's important that those stories are heard, but we don't uh, it's it's not always balanced by stories about positive aging programs or, or the joys of aged care that that we we see um, on a weekly basis. I know from my own experience that my my grandmother was absolutely steadfast to the end about uh, leaving the the family home, and uh, it was only when it was only when um, she reached uh, her end of life that she was in a facility, and she hated every second of, of that last few months. So. Uh, that, that myth certainly rang true for me when I, when I read it because that was my personal experience. Uh, Lauren James, do you have any thoughts on that? I think um, there are two sides of the coin in terms of the dignity argument. On the one hand, I, I can see how old people can find it undignified to be cared for when they're adults, but at the same time, they often don't want to be a burden on their families. So it's actually more dignified, or so they think, to live somewhat independently at least of their family and yeah. pay their own way mm. yeah i know my nan and pa had a similar experience to you patrick they were steadfast until the last few years and neither of them wanted to go but they they ended up going so oh excellent well it's been a really great chat uh thank you very much dallas for stepping in and, and giving us some interesting insights you're welcome you can find out more at agecareinsight.com.au James, campusreview.com.au and educationreview.com.au. What are you? Correct. Yes. What are you up to this weekend? Uh, not much. Not much. You? Uh, I'm going to go to the art gallery to check out the Archibald Prize and the Frida Kahlo exhibition, and I would say that's an excellent outing idea for uh, aged care residents. <laughs> Lauren, I will be doing uni work, so I'm hoping that it won't be too sunny. Excellent. And that's uh, earlylearningreview.com.au to find out more. Well, thank you very much, listeners, for joining us on Talking Eds. Thank you. Thanks.